Hi, this is Pastor Grayson Gilbert from Missio Day Fellowship of Kenosha, Wisconsin. I'm thankful you found our sermons, and I hope that they've been an encouragement to you in your walk with Christ. This sermon was, however, preached to and for the people that God has entrusted to me here. We would ask that if you are in our area, we would encourage you to come and worship with us, but that if you are not in our area, know that these sermons, while valuable resources, are simply no replacement for your own local church. And so in light of that, we would say you are to submit yourself to the faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Well, as I said, today we're going to be taking a look at Psalm 38. And in many ways, it's a unique psalm. I actually, I mentioned this up at the other church, and you guys may or may not hear it today, but uh, I found it incredibly ironic just because I have kind of a cold right now. And the psalm that I'm going to be preaching on today is the sickness due to sin that David has. So make of that what you will, but uh, that's what we're going to be dealing with today. It's, and so it's incredibly unique in that manner, simply because what you see through this whole psalm is that David's actually really broken. He's got a tremendous amount of grief. It's a psalm of lament, and that's just all that lament means is simply that it's this intense expression of either grief or regret. And in many ways, I think it's something that we as a, a broader church have lost in our day and age. Now, the reason I say this is simple. Life is hard. In fact, it's often brutal if we're going to just be painfully honest with ourselves because the effects of sin can be debilitating. I mean, it can really mess everything up. And then whether that's a result of our own sin or simply the result of living in a broken and fallen world, we see this every single day. The problem of pain and agony is unavoidable. The problem of your bodies falling apart is unavoidable. These are all just realities that we live with simply because we live in a broken and fallen world. Now, oftentimes, things strike us, tragedies strike us, and we don't know what to do with the very raw and palpable emotions that can come with that, and it's simply because we don't know what to really do with the evil that's presented before us in this world, too. We tend to look at men and women in Scripture of uh, great faith, and we see them as these super spiritual people, or they are the spiritual elites, if you will, And while in some cases they may put our faith to shame, the reality is they are unabashedly human. They have the same experiences that we do. They have the same pitfalls and temptations and sorrows and even folly that we often express in a sinful and broken world. They share, in other words, that same kind of mountaintop experience of joy that you and I might have, but also abide with us as we go into the lowest of the lows in that valley of despair, if you will. Now, today we see David in that valley. We see him deep in despair, but it's a very unique kind of despair. He's not simply feeling bad as a result of living in a broken and sinful world. He is in much anguish in his soul over his own sin. That's what we see today. To put it bluntly, David is, he's dying, but he's dying in a very grotesque way. And he realizes that his sickness that has brought on him is simply due to the discipline of the Lord. In every way, he is a broken man. He is physically, mentally, and relationally broken. He is circling the drain, and yet out of this, he cries out to God in sincere repentance and faith. So to put it in the most simple terms, David exhibits what we would call a godly sorrow. And so what I want to do to begin with this whole thing today is take you to 2 Corinthians 7, just go through three short verses and show you what godly sorrow actually is, and then define it for you so that as we go throughout this psalm, you can keep this in the back of your mind today. 
Again, that's 2 Corinthians 7. We'll start in verse 8 and just simply make our way down to verse 10. Now, as we go through this, the specific details of the Corinthian sin are not all that important for us. And I don't mean they're not important in the grand sense of that. I'm just saying that for today's purposes, what's important is that we understand what godly sorrow actually is. So notice in verse 8, all the way through verse 10, the Apostle Paul writes, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Now, I want you to notice a few key things about this passage before we move back to our psalm. First, notice Paul's not happy, right? He's not happy that he grieved these guys, but he also doesn't regret it, not in the least bit. I mean, he would do it all over again if it came down to it. What he had written to them were evidently incredibly hard words, and it brought him no immediate joy to chastise them, but as an apostle, he has this duty to do so. He has a God-given task to inflict good wounds upon them so that they might actually receive his correction and that he would also not prove unfaithful to his task. But ultimately, we see Paul rejoiced. Well, what did Paul rejoice over? Was he giddy over the fact that he made them feel bad? No, I mean, he tells us right here, he rejoiced over the fact that his letter actually produced what he desired it to produce. In other words, he saw that their grief wasn't just this consuming grief where they wallowed in despair. They were motivated through that grief to put away sin and to draw near or turn back to their God. It was a sorrow that he says was according to the will of God, meaning it was a sorrow, in fact, that God actually delighted in, and one that would not cause them to suffer loss, especially through the apostles. More importantly, though, it was a sorrow that, as he says in verse 10, is a godly sorrow, a sorrow that produces repentance, as he says, again, without regret. And it leads to salvation as opposed to what he says is a worldly sorrow, which leads to death. And this is really what I want to key in on briefly today, simply because these two kinds of sorrow are drastically different, and we need to flesh them out a little bit, but they also lead to very different results, don't they? One leads to life, one leads to death, as he says. And so what is a godly sorrow? What is a worldly sorrow? Well, godly sorrow is a type of grief that first and foremost cries out to God that you have sinned. It's a recognition that you have sinned. A worldly sorrow may cry out to God for relief in some sort of sense, but it never is in, it's never driven by an anguish of the soul, if you will. It's never driven by an anguish over sin. A godly sorrow, again, is a type of grief that produces submission to the discipline of the Lord. In other words, you accept it. Well, worldly sorrow does not. A worldly sorrow is a grief that seeks to avoid the consequences of sin. A godly sorrow is a type of grief that produces confession of your sin. A worldly sorrow, on the other hand, is a type of grief that seeks to conceal or minimize or outright reject guilt and sin. A godly sorrow, again, is a type of grief that leads one to plead upon the mercy and salvation of God, because in him alone is salvation and mercy found. 
A worldly grief is a type of sorrow that's born out of a love for this world and seeking to find a savior somewhere else. A godly sorrow is a type of grief that produces repentance that is obvious to everyone. And yet a worldly sorrow produces only a repentance that is the bare minimum. Only the bare minimum. Why? So they can avoid the gazing scrutiny of somebody else. That's the difference between worldly and godly sorrow, beloved. In the end, godly sorrow leads to life, yet worldly sorrow leads to death. This is a painful reality that scripture makes very, very clear. And we actually see this firsthand in our psalm today as David is on the brink of death. But what I want you to notice as we're going through it is that in every single instance, David actually shows a godly sorrow. He's actually exhibiting good, true repentance. And so as we go back to our passage in Psalm 38 today, keep all of this in mind, and we're going to start right in the beginning in verse 1, and we'll see the first mark of genuine repentance, which is that the repentant person cries out to God in recognition of their sin. So again, back all the way to Psalm 38, verse 1. Notice David says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your wrath, and chasten me not in your burning anger. I mean, the immediately he doesn't shrink away from the fact that God is angry with him, right? He doesn't excuse anything. He doesn't wonder if God is punishing him. He immediately starts with this keen awareness that God is actually punishing him. And yet what is even more startling to us, at least if we're honest about it, is how David now prays in light of that fact. Notice again in verse one, he doesn't ask by, or he doesn't start by asking God to remove his hand of discipline from him. He says, rebuke me not, in your wrath, chasing me not in your burning anger. The emphasis in his prayer is not the fact that God is actually rebuking him or chastening him, but on God's wrath and anger. Now, why is that so? Well, David is simply asking that as the Lord disciplines him, that he does so with a touch of mercy, that he doesn't do so with burning anger and wrath and indignation like he would upon the unbeliever. He knows that the anger and wrath of the Lord consumes And so he begs, in essence, for mercy. He says, I know you're going to punish me, but would you at least do so, not in burning anger, not in consuming wrath? There's no hint of him blaming God for it. He knows he's to blame. We're going to see that all throughout this passage today. But he does the one thing he knows he can and should do, which is to plead for mercy. He knows that God is merciful, in other words. Now, this is incredibly important simply because right at the get-go, we know David knows God is angry with him. He knows that God is angry with him. We also know David has committed some serious sin, right? If the Lord's angry with you, it's not without cause. We also know that David shows a sincere and immediate trust and faith in God. I mean, that's incredible. Even in the midst of this situation, he still has a sincere faith and trust in his God, He knows that he doesn't deserve God's mercy, especially now. But it's not like he's ever been in a position where he has deserved it or earned it. Now, notice as we continue to move along here, there's a sense of both a a physical and a spiritual affliction from God here. You know, David senses this as we look at verses 2 and following. We're going to touch on the, the physical nature of this shortly, but I want you to actually look down at the text with me. And see what he says in verse 2. 
He says that he's being pierced by this continual bombardment of arrows, right? Your, your arrows have sunk down deep into me, and your hand is pressed down upon me. I mean, again, he's just immediately acknowledging the fact that God is opposed to him. These are not merely surface wounds, like he has some little pangs of conscience. He's guilty and done something wrong. He's actually afflicted here. He knows that God is opposed to him. He has arrows that pierce down to the depths of his soul. And as we see him describe his sickness, and even in a little bit, he does it so in excruciating detail. He's actually in a very miserable state. But there's undoubtedly this spiritual dimension to it here as well, because he says the hand of the Lord is pressing down on him. Notice that in verse 2. We see this phrase come up again and again in Scripture, and there's two different ways it's typically used. One would be that the hand of the Lord is against you or the hand of the Lord is for you, right? Well, here it's pretty plain which one he's speaking towards. The hand of the Lord is actually against him. In Psalm 32, you don't need to flip there. I'm just going to read it for you. David speaks about a time where he has been silent in his sin. He does not confess his sin. So same kind of context we see here. His bones, he says, have become brittle. It became to him a cause for groaning all day long. And then in verse 4, he actually says, for day and night, that means all day long, your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was drained as in the summer heat. And then again in Psalm 39.10, same kind of concept here. We're going to see this, Lord willing, next week. He says, remove your scourge from me, for I am perishing by the force of your hand. The hand of the Lord is against me. In 1 Samuel 5, 6, this is a different context here. This is talking about judgment. But the prophet says, Now the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity, so the people around them, ravaging them and afflicting them with tumors. Right? So you see the same kind of idea, that the hand of the Lord is against them. In every case that we find that particular phrase, it means the same thing, beloved. The hand of the Lord is being raised against them, and it's not a good or pretty picture. The Lord is opposed to them. He even afflicts them. And this is exactly what we see in our psalm here today. David, though, is is sensing the full weight of his sin. And if you've ever been in that kind of a position, you know it's not a pleasant thing, right? I mean, how many of you, you don't need to raise your hands, but how many of you have been what you believe was under the discipline of the Lord? I mean, I know that I have. There was a point, I mean, earlier on in my Christian walk where I was knee-deep in sin, I mean, I was intentionally not seeking repentance. That was just where I was at at the point. I knew it was sin, right? It wasn't exactly as if the word was silent against me on that. And I knew God opposed me because of that. So it's not like that was a mystery, right? It's like, you should not do this. No, duh, the Lord's opposed to you, man. But what happened in that was that I could actually sense a period in which I felt God was against me, that he was not for me that the relationship was broken and that it needed to be restored. And that even though I had forgiveness and grace and mercy in Christ, I was the man in the book of Romans who said, shall I not sin so that grace may abound? Well, Paul says, make an oito. God forbid, but I was that man. And I felt the hand of the Lord heavy against me. It was, if you would say, an existential crisis. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. I was miserable. For the first time since I had actually come to faith, I doubted that I was saved. I legitimately doubted that. The reason was very, very simple, beloved. I loved my sin in that moment, and I knew that I loved it more than my God. 
and he is a jealous God who will not share affection with another. But the one thing that assured me was that I knew I was being disciplined. In my mind, there was no escaping that reality. The Lord was disciplining me, and that was the only thing that brought me comfort at that point. And yet I still had to repent. Well, this is the reality of David here. We're going to see the grotesque reality in his illness shortly, but notice how plain this is to David in verses 3 through 4. First notice that he draws out there's this holistic effect, meaning every aspect of his body is succumbing to his sin. So he tells us in verse 3, there is no soundness in his flesh, nor there is there health in his bones. And so all he's saying is that every square inch of my body is aching under the weight of my sin, but it's actually deteriorating because of his sin. And so it's not just that he feels bad. His body is literally getting messed up because of his sin. Well, he tells us this plainly in verse 4. He says that he feels the weight of this, right? His iniquities are a heavy burden that weigh far too much for him to bear. But secondly, notice that he has no doubts about this. He has no doubts that this is the discipline of the Lord. We see this again and again through three through five. David uses the word because here, and he draws out the idea of God's anger against him, but also his sin, his folly. Notice that he says this in in verse three, there is no soundness in my flesh. Why? Because of your indignation, because of your anger. Again, in verse 3, there is no health in my bones. Why? Because of my sin. My wounds grow foul and fester. So, I mean, open sores, smelly open sores. Why? Because of my folly. Then in verse 4, he simply lays it all bare. He, He says, my iniquities are gone over my head. My sins are far too large for me to handle. Lord, I am I'm drowning in my sin. Everything is caught up to me. There's no escape. My body is decaying. My family and friends are departing from me. My sin is dragging me down to the depths of Sheol, and I can sense it. I know that I am moments from death. You, O oh God, have pierced me by your arrows. There is no soundness in my flesh. Have mercy. Have mercy. Everything from here on out is just a portrayal of that broken man. He's hit rock bottom. He has this keen awareness that he sinned against his God. But it's not that everything that his sickness is bringing him is really the misery behind it. The misery is simply that he has not repented. The misery is that David is now finally seeing his sin for what it truly is. And this is why I say it's evidence of a, of a broken or contrite and repentant heart in him. He sees the Lord is disciplining him, and he doesn't beg it to stop. He doesn't say, remove the discipline. No. He doesn't explain away his sin. He actually owns every bit of this. He owns his sin, and he calls it for what it really is. We saw that in verses 3 and 5. He says it is rebellion, and it is foolishness. That's a contrite heart. If we are to be a people who demonstrate repentance, then in our own lives... We must do the same, beloved. We have no option of minimizing or downplaying or excusing away our sin. We give no excuses. We make no exceptions. We do not seek to explain or justify our actions. And if we find ourselves in that place where the hand of the Lord is actually against us, we must not equivocate. We must not downplay it. We must repent. 
But that's really the most basic aspect of repentance, isn't it? When you simply acknowledge the fact that your sin is sin, when you go before God in agreement and say, this is sin, the word condemns it, my Lord condemns it. And so you acknowledge your sin before God. And yet notice David doesn't just stop here, does he? So he's not just at the point where he says, I have sinned. He cries out to the Lord for mercy. And and this is really just a beautiful picture of what it means to appeal before God, even in the midst of what would be judgment. Now, we tend to think of judgment just as end days judgment or sending people to hell, but God does judge sin, even in the life of the believer. He will not condemn them, but he will judge them. But this is the way in which you appeal. There's no hint of David blaming God. He doesn't blame him for the situation he's in. In fact, he does just the opposite, doesn't he? He says, I've sinned. All this is happening because of my sin. And yet, rather than turn away from God, what does he do? Right? We tend to think we have to, to shy away from God when we have our sin exposed. We, we run in the opposite direction. But what David does here is he actually leans in all the more. And I have the fear that so many of us buy into that lie that when sin is exposed, especially from others, even within the church, that the first thing we have to do is try and hide it. Or the first thing we have to do is run away from God when the reality is we actually need to lean in all the more. Now, don't misunderstand me. There's a proper way in which we do that, right? There's a proper way in which we lean upon God for his mercy. We're not owed it. We can't demand it of him, but it is never improper to ask him for it. But in all of it, we must recognize the fact that the discipline of God is designed to draw us back to the mercy of God. That's the purpose in a nutshell. When we are being disciplined by the Lord, the whole purpose is to draw us back to God, not away from him. In the midst of that, then, we have to recognize that the cry for mercy must be done with a heart of submission. And that's probably the toughest thing for us to bear. Whatever consequences may come our way, whatever the natural, judicial, or even just plain old Uh, things that happen as a result of our sin, we have to bear under them. We know that the Lord disciplines those whom he loves, but we often don't want to accept that discipline. But this is what is a second mark of genuine repentance in the life of David here. If you notice, he actually submits himself to it. We see this now in verses 5 through 16. Now, before I get into this section, I, I really do want to take a brief moment and just draw out or explain something And I'm going to try and do it with much care because every one of us gets sick, right? And so the last thing I want to do is cause everyone here to think that every time you get a case of the sniffles, or even if you have a severe disease or sickness, that it is a result of personal sin because scripture just simply doesn't teach that. Scripture does not teach that, beloved. It is a result of sin in the broad sense, in one sense. And we know that because we've been been born into a broken and distorted world, Ever since Adam took of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and ate of it, sin and its destructive consequences have ravaged the world. And so every sin or every sickness, every disease, every death is a result of that sin. That's just the plain reality. Many times we suffer sickness or disease simply as a result of living in this broken and sinful world. Meaning, in other words, it's not a result of personal sin. Now think of the man who was born blind. And the Pharisees went to Jesus and said, for why is he blind? Is it the result of his sin or his parents' sin? 
He said, neither, right? He was born blind so that God might be glorified in Christ in the healing of his sight. So if you're experiencing sickness, it doesn't necessarily mean it's because of sin. It could simply be simply that you live in a broken and fallen world. You might feel like God is punishing you. You might feel depressed. You might feel as if God is distant from you. But the reality is actually not the case. The most explicit example I can think of, again, is with the book of Job. Right? Job suffered painful boils. He watched his children and many of his other loved ones die. And his servants, he lost his assets. And then he had friends that surrounded him. And what were his friends guilty of? They said that all of this happened, Job, because of your sin. Well, is that what God said? No, right? God maintained that Job was blameless throughout the whole ordeal, right? There was not one sin that he could point to that said, this is a result of your sin, but his friends were happy to condemn him that way. In another sense, though, there are sicknesses that are brought on as a result of sin. Now, you heard John say this this morning as he got up and briefly alluded to what we hear regularly through the Lord's Supper, right? When he gets up and tells you that we are to consider before we take the Lord's Supper, well, what's the reason for that? Well, Paul, back in 1 Corinthians, I believe, talks to the Corinthians. He says, take the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner, right? Because there's bitterness and divisions and factions among them. Well, the reason he gives is that some of them had fallen sick and some of them had even died. That's a sober warning. Some of them had fallen sick and some of them had even died. We also know just from the plain consequences of sin that when we have things that happen in our life, like, I mean, think of anxiety or depression or even unchecked anger, that your body can suffer the natural results of that, right? So if you just take anger, you can have heart issues. I mean, literally, you can have cardiac issues as a result of unchecked anger. You can weaken your immune system. That starts pretty much right away. You can have trouble breathing. So not only will you maybe have anxiety attacks that come with it, but you'll actually have reduced lung function. You can unleash even a host of enzymes in your body that will attack all of your other organs and lead to an early death. All from anger. All from what we would normally consider a fairly socially acceptable sin, right? Or maybe I don't have that big of a problem with anger, but this is fascinating if you think about it. The amount of damage that can be done simply from what we would consider an ordinarily harmless, socially acceptable sin. Well, we don't know exactly what David experienced here. We don't know if this is um, dealing with stuff like that or infidelity or whatever the case might be, but we do know that he is experiencing sickness as a result of his sin. We do know that for a fact but also we know for a fact that he knows it. And that's really important, guys. So again, we don't know the details of it, but we know that he knows without a shadow of a doubt that his sickness is brought on due to sin. It's not as if David committed some unknown sin or he stumbled and you know, did an oopsie-daisy, if you will. But in reality, he can pinpoint an idea or a thing in his mind where rebellion took place. He knew it. He knew it was severe sin, and he knew that the severe consequences were a result of that sin. And so from verses 5 on down, we see what that looks like for him. Now, I'm going to simply summarize all these different ailments that David is experiencing right now 
But again, notice throughout this whole section how often he talks about it being due to his sin. So in verse five, what does he describe here? He has wounds that grow foul and fester. Why? Because of his folly. So here you could imagine there's this really kind of unpleasant smell and sight to behold when you walk in the same room as David. And when you get to verse 11, you see that his family and friends have departed him. It's no surprise as to why, right? Notice in verses six through eight, though, that he's bent over, he's doubled over. The Hebrew word being used here is it speaks of him being twisted and contorted in pain. As a result, he's simply not able to stand. His loins are burning, that's his thighs. His whole body is unsound, meaning there is nothing in him that feels even remotely okay. He's grown weak. He feels as if every bone in his body has been crushed. All day long, he says, I am in intense pain. I am crushed, I mourn, I groan. And the word here is even howls at times. And it's a little wonder as to why. Right? If you have open festering wounds, that's not pleasant. But then you've got everything else that accompanies this that he has. No wonder why you're howling. And so the question we simply ask is, why would God bring this upon him? Right? Why would God punish this man? This is David. He's a man after God's own heart. Well, to put it simply, God punished David in this way to bring him to the point he is here in this psalm. He's finally repentant. He's finally seen his sin for what it is. He's not diminishing or downplaying how destructive it is because he really can't. It finally caught up to him. In other words, this, this sickness is what actually opened his eyes to seeing the reality of what his sin has brought. It's brought him to a clear understanding of his spiritual condition before God had humbled him. And this is what this whole section is striving towards in a nutshell. Right now, David's not happy about the fact he's sick and he's close to death. Who would be? But the incredible thing is that he's not focused upon that reality. He's had enough, don't get me wrong, but what he's had enough of is not merely the sickness. He's had enough of his sin. And take a look with me at verses 9 through 12, and we're going to see this shine through a bit more clearly in the text. But notice what he says here. He says, Lord, all my desire is before you, and my sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, even that has gone from me. My loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague, right? Open wounds, they smell. My kinsmen stand afar off. And then here's the real clincher. Those who seek my life lay snares for me. And those who seek to injure me have threatened destruction. All they do is devise treachery, right? All day long they devise this, he says. Well, that word that he says here for desire in that first verse is equally as intense as his pain. But here it speaks of this intense longing or craving that David has. It's not, in other words, something that is him craving after the Lord, but that his desire to be free from his sin, to be free from everything that's ailing him right now is before the Lord. Meaning that his intense longing all day long is before the Lord. The Lord knows it, in other words. It's not hidden from him. He even says that in the very next line in verse nine. He says, Lord, you know everything that's going on right now. You see it all. The Lord has seen his failing and faltering servant. He's watching a weak and feeble man 
one who was once strong and mighty, going around and slaying the giants, he's watching this weak and feeble man now cry out and writhe in pain. The Lord is watching his once bright and joyful eyes grow dim under the weight of his sin and his sickness. God himself has seen his friends and family desert him, his enemies taking this as an opportunity to kick him while he's down. David says, nothing escapes your watchful eye, O God. Nothing. And in one fell swoop, you can see the heart of a man start to just melt. He melts like hand, or putty in the hands of his maker. Now, parents, you've experienced this any time you've had proper discipline with your kids, and they've melted, haven't you? They're not sorry over the fact that you spanked them or have removed some of their ple- you know, favorite toys from them, but they're actually sorrowful over their sin, and they just they melt, and you watch them melt because there's true, genuine remorse. They know that they've screwed things up between mom and dad and, and them, And so they want to make it right. And so what do you do? You pick them up, you hug them, you reassure them that you love them. And this is, in essence, the same thing that we see take place when God disciplines us. When God disciplines us, he reassures us of his love for us. Well, why do we know that? Because he only disciplines those whom he loves. That's what the book of Hebrews tells us. We know that he loves David. I mean, he has said that over and again throughout the Psalms. And yet he's disciplining him. We see this even in his prayer because he's a broken man, right? He sees that this discipline is good. And why do I say that? He doesn't ask for it to be gone. I mean, where do you see that in this psalm? Do you see it anywhere? Does he say, Lord, take this away from me? No, he says, Lord, have mercy. He yields to it. He no longer resists God. He, he simply accepts it. And again, this is why I say this is genuine repentance. He accepts it. We see this in 13 and 14 a bit more clearly as well. Right? So his, his enemies have come around him. They're surrounding him. They're seeking to kick him while he's down. And in contrast to them, they're being very vocal. He just says, but I, like a deaf man, do not hear. And I, like a mute man, who does not open his mouth. Yes, I am like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no arguments. I will say not a word. He recognizes his condition is beyond the need for self-defense. He doesn't need to plead his case before his accusers. He doesn't need to do anything but remain silent. He can ignore them, in other words. Now, there's a tremendous amount of wisdom here if you want to look at it in a very practical sense, but at the heart of it, what I want you to see is his his attitude, his demeanor behind it. In light of his afflictions that he's just simply been acknowledging all the way down through this section, the discipline of the Lord is far more severe than the accusations of his enemies. In the end, they're not all that important. Why? Why? Well, detractors come and go. They're they're a dime a dozen. David's no stranger to men who hate him. But the active hand of the Lord pressing down upon you and afflicting you, now that's a different story, isn't it? But he still knows God loves him. He still knows God's faithful to the covenant. He still knows, in other words, that God will take up his case, even though he's done some very stupid things. David still holds confidence that 
God is his, in other words, and that he is God's. And so even here, even in the midst of much sin, he trusts God. Take a look at how much hope he's just brimming with here in verses 15 and 16. He offers up another short prayer to God, but look at what he says. This is incredible. In the midst of everything going on, he says, for I hope in you, O Yahweh, you will answer, O Lord my God, for I said, here it is, I prayed before, may they not rejoice over me, who when my foot slips would magnify themselves against me. I know you're going to answer that. I know it, Lord, because you're faithful. Now, there's several key things I want you to notice about this short prayer, but for one, notice how firmly his place is, or firmly his faith is still placed in this covenant-keeping God. He doesn't need to rise to his own defense. He doesn't need to plead his case. He knows that God will be the one who answers his prayers. He knows that God, in other words, never falters on his promises. Even still, even in the midst of great sin, David shows an incredible faith, doesn't he? Even when he is not faithful, God is still faithful. For two, notice in verse 15 that just after he shows an incredible amount of confidence, that God will answer, he still shows confidence, equal confidence, if you will, that God is his God. He says, I know you will answer, O Adonai Elohim, that is, O Lord, my God. Adonai and Elohim are both terms that stress God's complete power and authority and majesty over all of creation. And yet, he does not simply refer to this God as this all-powerful all great abstract being who is over the cosmos. No, he says, my Lord and my God. This great and powerful God is David's God. He also uses a personal name of God, which is Yahweh. And when you draw these things together, you know that in every single aspect, he knows he is God's and God is his. It is not just a matter of this God being powerful and terrible from the heavens, but that he is his God. And then finally, in verse 16, we see that David has confidence God will still judge the wicked. He's not going to let them rejoice over him in his current state of affairs, in other words. But again, notice in no place does David ask for the consequences to stop. In no place does he ask for that. This is particularly why I say he has resigned himself to God's discipline. Nowhere in the psalm does he ask for that. He asks for mercy. He pleads upon God's covenant faithfulness. But he doesn't not say, remove your hand from me, O Lord. In the end, what he does is embody that same reality we find in James chapter 4. James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your heart, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and weep. Turn your laughter into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. In the same manner that David submits himself to the discipline of the Lord, right? he's showing that humility, we need to as well, right? This is pure evidence of the fact that we see our sin for what it is. We don't avoid the discipline, in other words. We don't seek to wriggle out of our consequences. We accept them 
And that's hard, but we still do so because we know that the Lord has not brought them upon us for no reason. We submit ourselves to it, but simply because we have a genuine godly sorrow. We know our sin has created a rift between us and God and whomever we've sinned against. And sorrow is not due to the consequences, once again, but due to the sin that brought the consequences. Beloved, this is one of the clearest indications of genuine repentance. When your sorrow is attached to being caught or punished or revealed, that's a worldly sorrow. It's a worldly sorrow. A godly sorrow is not so concerned about the consequences. It's concerned about the sin. I always worry for the man or for the woman who is so concerned about what consequences come. The consequences aren't fun. We all know that. Everybody knows that. That's, that's not why they're brought to us, though. When you show no real remorse over sin, it is a sad, sad day, beloved. That's a worldly sorrow. That's a worldly sorrow that Paul says leads to death. Godly sorrow is grief over sin. Godly sorrow does not take an interest in in self-preservation or self-defense, if you will. Godly sorrow doesn't blame shift or minimize it or explain it away or seek to just say, oops, my bad. Godly sorrow just simply owns it. That's how you know things are different. It's not I'm going to explain it away. It's I'm just going to accept it. I'm going to endure the consequences. Why? Because I'm more interested in that restored relationship with my creator and my fellow man than anything else. I have sinned and therefore I need to make it right. This is a sorrow that Paul says leads to repentance. This is the sorrow that David had, and yet I want you to notice that he's not even done just here. He confesses his sin. This is what we're going to see in 17 through 20. Not only do we see that genuine repentance actually cries out to God, right? It recognizes there is sin. I have sinned before an infinitely holy God. Not only does it submit to the discipline of the Lord and saying, I'm just going to take the consequences, We see now in 17 through 20 that it leads to confession before God, right? I I agree with God fully and freely. I'm going to admit it. I'm going to confess it and seek restoration. Notice again how clearly David affirms that all of his frailty, all of his grief is due to his sin. And also notice how clearly he shows sorrow over this. Again, 17 through 20. It says, for I am ready to fall. I'm about to die. I'm about to fall for good. My sorrow is continually before me. He knows that his sin has brought these disastrous consequences. He knows he's near death and he's filled with constant sorrow. Well, he has a genuine sorrow. Why? In part because life is incredibly miserable, right? I mean, who would not be sorrowful in those circumstances? but he also knows that in full that all of this misery is a result of his sin. This is a small glimpse again into the heart of what genuine repentance looks like. And the reason I say this is simple. One who knows God, one who genuinely loves God, cannot abide in sin 
and be joyful at the same time. It just doesn't work like that. If we are genuinely in Christ, we will always feel true remorse over sin. We may not see it right away, right? I mean, there might be times where months go by before it's even revealed to you. But when it hits you, it hits you square between the eyes. The consequences might produce sorrow, right? We, we know that. Everybody feels the weight of that. But the consequences are nothing compared to the weight of guilt over sin. Why? Because we know that we are sinning against our God who is always good, who is always loving, who has never done us wrong. He has sent his son into the world that we might not face the penalty for our sins. The reason we come back is because we recognize that penalty fell on him and he, he didn't deserve it. In all of it, we're going to come back always, ever more to the point of saying it was this sin or my sin that crushed him. It was my sin that drove the bitter nails into his feet and hands. It was this sin that crushed God's son. And if we feel the weight of that, we can't help but see the incredible cost it brought upon Jesus. But notice here what happens to David. This is rather incredible. When he refused to repent and forsake of his sin, it produced a dread and anxiety in him, right? He's finally at the point where he's confessing it. We see that in verse 18. He says, I confess my iniquity. But notice what he also says. I am full of anxiety. Why? Once again, because of my sin. He's not merely dreading the past consequences that have already come upon him where he sees just his overall frailty. He thinks of what's coming next and he knows, I don't think it's going to be any better. He's filled with anxiety and he says it's because of a sin. It's all because he's looking forward to what else might come. He has a concern that the past, in other words, is just a glimpse into how horrible his future will be, but a mere glimpse. And it's a rather profound statement on what unrepentant, unrepentant sin actually does. Right? We're not just simply unsettled by what we've done. We're not unsettled by the fact that it's sin. We're always waiting for the other shoe to drop, aren't we? If we're knee-deep in sin and refusing to let it go, we're always waiting to see what comes next. I think that's by design. There's this constant sense of dread or fear of what may come, of what else might be discovered, of what else might be stripped of us. But with confession of sin, those fears are actually quieted. Those fears are stilled. That's the beautiful thing about what God does, is even in the midst of discipline, when you see David confess, we see that there's actually some measure of hope once again for him. Right? He has hope and trust in his God, Why do I say that? Well, if you look at the text, right, he says, I am full of anxiety because of my sin. He moves on in 19 and 20, but my enemies are vigorous and strong. Many are those who hate me wrongfully and those who repay evil for good. They oppose me because I follow what is good. And you're like, okay, well, how are you getting that? He still follows what is good, beloved. The general trajectory of his life is one in which he still seeks to please his Lord. Right? His overall trajectory is one in which he follows the commandments of his God. Even though he's caught in flagrant sin, he can still look at this and say, look, they're opposing me wrongly. They're coming against me and I've done nothing against them. 
he may have enemies that are in full health. And there's, there's a principle that might be at play even where he says, this is wrong. These guys are wicked. I'm suffering the consequences of my sin. Why not them? But nonetheless, he still is able to say with a complete sincerity that he does not deserve their um, retribution, if you will. And it's a strange couple of verses that we think of in the midst of this psalm of lament over sin, right? In one sense, you have David who's saying, I'm broken over my sin. In another sense, he says, but I am blameless because I follow what is good. And you're like, okay, well, how the heck, how the heck does that work? But if, if you think about it, it's not so strange after all, is it? At the heart of David's cry, for one, is this age-old feud between goodness and evil. Right? You have evil men who surround him. They're seeking to kick him while he's down. They're seeking to usurp the throne. He's at his most vulnerable point, and they want nothing more than to see him fall and God's promises to fail. That's at the heart of it, right? So much more is at stake than simply David getting sick and dying. God has made certain covenant promises to him. He says that one will come through you in which your throne will never see darkness or one will reign on your throne forevermore as it's put elsewhere. And so if wicked men come against him in triumph, what what does that mean for that promise? If David dies, right? No man comes upon the throne. He knows that God's promises and purposes would fail as a result. So he says, don't let this happen. Lord, you've promised this. Be faithful to your covenant. I don't deserve it, but be faithful. But he has every expectation that God will actually honor that prayer. He has, in other words, a hope that even in the midst of his own stupidity and even in the midst of his own sin, that God is ever and always faithful. For two, this is the fundamental nature of every single person who is in Christ. Right? God's people still sin. We still do incredibly stupid things. We still do things that will bring severe consequences, even so for years after the fact. There's ways in which I look at my life before Christ, and I still suffer the consequences of it today. Does that mean God despises me? No. Is it a consequence of my sin? Absolutely. But my overall disposition at this point is now that I am in Christ, my goal is to seek to honor and please him in every single thing that I do. And so I trust in him. Just as you trust in him for forgiveness, just as you look at some of the consequences to sin that have been created as a result of foolishness, and you say, I did something really dumb, but I still love the Lord. I'm still going to follow after him. I still am going to follow what is good. I may not have done so then, but boy, am I going to now. In other words, flagrant sin is never the pattern of one who is in Christ. Constant rebellion is never that pattern. Why? Because you will actually seek to obey your Lord. Your nature will have it no other way. Whenever you become aware of sin, even if it takes you a while to see it, once you actually do see it for what it is, you'll hate it, right? David hates it here. You'll have no greater desire than to confess it and to admit that it is sin. You'll seek to repent of it, but you'll also trust God in the midst of every bit of it. Now, Matt Miller gave an analogy years back of repentance being like the turning of a ship. At sometimes when you see your sin for what it is, it's either going to be like the turning of a speed 
ship or an aircraft carrier, right? Either way, you know that you have to turn around. Sometimes that sin is revealed for what it is, and it's very easy to repent and turn around. Right? You whip off in the opposite direction, going 80 miles an hour, and it's like nothing ever happened. But other times, it's like the turning of an aircraft carrier. It's a big, long, heavy ship, and it takes ages for that sucker to turn around. It is painfully slow, and yet there is a turning. Right? There is a turning. When you look at the Christian life as a whole, that's what it is. There's going to be times in which you can whip right around by the Lord's grace, and there are other times where it's painful and methodical and slow, and it stinks. But it's so vital for us to understand simply because if we are in Christ, our new nature will have it no other way. Our life is one of continual repentance. You may battle sin for the rest of your life. In fact, you're actually going to do that in general if you didn't know that. But you may battle some sins for the rest of your life, but as long as there is battle, as long as there is genuine remorse, as long as there is an earnest plea and confession of sin, as long as you are seeking to repent, beloved, you're moving in the right direction. You may fail time and again in striving after it, but it will be your course. Now, I want you to see, though, that even here, David doesn't stop. This is the final few verses, or two verses, if you will. So after everything that David has described here, everything he's pleaded for with his God, notice how he makes two simple final requests in verses 21 through 22. Do not forsake me, O Yahweh. O my God, do not be far from me. And number two, make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. In both lines, you can clearly see that his cry is that the Lord would not abandon him in his most desperate time. Right? He's watched his family and friends depart. He has watched his health depart from him. He has watched his enemies surround him at this point as they're just waiting for his life to depart from him. But in the midst of it all, he is keen, keenly aware that only God can fix his desperate position. Only God can bring him back from the brink of destruction and deliver him, not only from the devastating effects of his own sin, but from his enemies from all these people that actually hate him and despise him and want to see him die. And so the question is, will God help him? Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. In David's mind, just as there is no doubt that his sickness is a punishment from the Lord, there is no doubt in his mind that his God will help him. There is a, an incredible glimmer of hope here. As on one hand, the Lord afflicts the proud, so too, on the other hand, he exalts the humble. And sometimes that person is the same person. David here has hope of deliverance because he knows that God will hear his cries. He knows that God is faithful to his promises. Notice again, he says, my Lord and my salvation. In other words, he's not making this cry as if this is somehow something he hopes to have. God is his God. God is his salvation. God is his and, and he is God's, in other words. No shadow of a doubt in his mind. But he does ask that he make haste to do so. Again, he knows nobody else can deliver him. Nobody else can save. The one certainty he has is that God is a saving God, that God is near to his people, and so with a heart of repentance and genuine faith, he trusts once more in his God. 
And as I close everything out, this is the same simple plea that I make to you. If you are finding yourself in a position where you think that the discipline of the Lord is on you, I say, seek him. The worst thing that you can do is to pull away from God. Nothing else can deliver you. Nothing else can save you. Even in the midst of much correction, nothing else will give you the immense amount of love and grace and mercy that is contained in the fullness of who God is and what he has done. We may not like God's nearness to us in that time, but he indeed indeed is near to us, is he not? And if you felt that hand of discipline before, you know that because it stinks, doesn't it? But he is still near. It may be a time to weep in the morn and let our laughter be turned to gloom instead. But it is not a time of despair, for God disciplines those whom he loves. If you've never faced his discipline, though, that is the time, beloved, to fear. Because he does not discipline an illegitimate child. The illegitimate child is one who faces God's hand against him at times when he sins. They also are the one that doesn't come before God in recognition of sin, though. They don't submit themselves to discipline. They don't confess their sins. They certainly do not come to him for mercy, salvation. The legitimate son, in other words, though, does the complete opposite, don't they? They recognize their sin. They come before God and say, you know what? This is sin. I know it. They abide under the discipline of the Lord, and even though it's not pleasant, they do so, knowing of what it will produce. They confess their sins to God, and then they inevitably always will lean on him for mercy and salvation. They will lean on him for mercy and deliverance, even if it must be that final day in which sin, Satan, and death are utterly vanquished and crushed under the foot of Christ. They know that God will be their salvation. Why? Because he is faithful. Those are only four marks of genuine repentance, but there is a fifth that I would say flows from all of these. And that is that genuine repentance is obvious, beloved. It is obvious to all. There will be a marked change in your life, in your beliefs, in your practices if you seek genuine repentance. In other words, no one will have to wonder if you truly see sin for what it is and if you truly are repenting. It may be slow. It may take everything you've got, but it will be evident. You will hate that sin. And you will pursue repentance without regret because you know what comes of it is just the sheer blessing and goodness of the Lord. It is the one whose repentance is not obvious. And what I mean by that is they don't have a heart and mind and soul that craves it. And the reason for this is twofold. If you never come to a point where you hate your sin or you've never experienced God's discipline, I fear that you may not even be in Christ. It's just that blunt in Scripture. If you do hate your sin and you believe that you are experiencing his discipline, I also fear for you if you're not seeking repentance because, beloved, it can get a whole lot worse. There can be many, many harder days in store. Make no mistake, if God must pry sin from our fingers, he will. Doesn't mean every single case of the sniffles or every disease that is faced is a result of sin. We live in a broken and sinful and distorted world. And sometimes those things are simply foisted upon us. But it does mean 
that in certain cases, the Lord will bring us under very, very severe affliction. We cannot love sin and walk the Christian life. God will not share our allegiance and affections with another master. He is a jealous God, and in that jealousy, he will afflict if he must. The book of Hebrews tells us that he scourges us. It's the same word that's used to describe when Christ endured the whippings, where the lashings tore his flesh from his body. That is what you and I undergo under the discipline. We are scourged. It's not pleasant, but it's not designed to be pleasant. But it is the way in which a a field or a harvest of righteousness and peace are actually cultivated under the training of the Lord's discipline. In other words, discipline is God's way, way of producing obedience in us and training us. Psalm 119, 67 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Again, Psalm 119, 71, It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your statutes. But notice I also said it produces peace. And why do I say it produces peace? Well, parents, you know this in one sense because you've all witnessed it when your son or daughter runs into that brick wall that is mom or dad because they just get that wild hair and they want to be continually rebellious, that once they hit that brick wall enough times, they know, okay, it hurts. And so what do they do? They, they melt. They start to obey. It starts to be pleasurable in the home again because there's control and order. There's peace. They are no longer striving against the brick wall that will not move. They're no longer fighting uphill through a hedge of thorns, in other words. In all of it, though, discipline is a means of hope. Now, that might sound strange to your ears, but it is a hopeful thing. And a very simple reason for that is that the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. It is the legitimate child who will face discipline. It is the illegitimate child who will always and ever continue to go unheeded, meaning unanswered in their prayers, but more specifically, that will never face correction. Do not lose heart when it comes. Beloved, it will come. You're a sinner. Do not lose heart because it is the very demonstration of God's love for you. But turn once more in repentance and faith to the one who saves Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage, even though it is an incredibly hard word in many ways. We thank you that you do not leave us as we are, that you do not see fit to leave us undisciplined and unruly children, but that you will discipline us. It is not a pleasurable thing. We know this. But I pray that in those moments when that time comes in which we feel your hand against us, that we would submit to the discipline of the Lord and we would inevitably do so with eyes of faith towards Jesus Christ, but repentance as well in which we turn from our sin, that we go in the correct direction. That is the direction that your word so clearly lays out for us, that path of obedience and righteousness that you call us to as children of the living God. I pray for this people that as you send them home today, that you would allow them to get home safely that you would allow us to be able to look ever and always towards our blessed Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.